Well, happy November 1st, and it feels like the first day of winter out there, doesn't it? I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and um, I am a transformed follower of Jesus. 2020 is a year for the books, isn't it? I mean, from pandemic to a huge political um, election going on, and also probably one of the worst years in history for wildfires in California. I read something that when you combine all of the fires that have been in privately held land and then in the national parks, it covers over 4 million acres, 8,834 incidents of fires, forest fires in California. But there's another kind of... uh, wildfire that's growing, and that is hatred. Have you noticed that in our culture, there just seems to be more and more hatred that's being expressed? I I don't think in my lifetime, since perhaps the 1960s, has there been a time period when there has been more hatred showing. Politics have become inflamed. Road rage is burning up the highways. Domestic conflict is engulfing families. The damage is leaving civil conversations in ashes and our character in charred ruins. Hatred is not our friend. Matter of fact, this is a key idea I want you to grab a hold of. Hatred ignites the destructive power of volatile hostility. Hatred ignites this very destructive power of volatile hostility. Uh, Anger and envy and animosity and malice and contempt are all destructive. Can you remember, um, maybe as a child, you said to your your mom, uh, I hate um, broccoli or something like that at the table. You probably got away with that one, but you still had to eat it. But when you said you hated your brother or sister, that caused a little different kind of conversation. Hatred... Is, is something we learn early that's a, that's a word that is very, very powerful. And the attitude of hatred can ignite um, destructive power. What are the roots of hatred? And how should we respond to it as a follower of Christ? We claim to be transformed followers of Jesus. But how do we respond when other people express hatred towards us? How do we respond when we feel hatred in our soul? One of the things we're doing in this series is we're talking about developing a a biblical worldview so that we're filtering everything through Scripture. And so whether we're talking about politics or race or we're talking about hatred today or next week anxiety, we're talking about how do we filter that through the biblical big story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so today we want to do that with a problem of hatred. How How do we think about that? As we think about creation, hatred was not burning in God's original creation. There wasn't any hatred. Matter of fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, you read kind of the wide-angle lens of the six days of creation and then the zoom lens of the creation of man in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, after every day of creation, God said this, it is good. So that's a creator speaking with satisfaction over his creation. And one of the reasons it was good is that there was no conflict and there was no hatred in that original creation. There was no hatred between Adam and Eve. There was no hatred between man and God. There was no sin for God to hate. And life was good. If you haven't noticed, we're not living in the Garden of Eden anymore. Because something else happened called the fall. 
And the fall of mankind um, kindled hatred. Hatred was kindled by the fall. I was thinking about this and wrestling with where did this all start? Where did hatred come from? On the one hand, God had a capacity for holy or righteous hatred. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But where did the sinful kind of hatred we're talking about today come from? I want to suggest to you that that hatred came from Satan, that he was the arsonist that ignited hatred in the universe and in the human race. Because he took the flame from his own heart that resented God and was envious of God and wanted to be seen as God. And he then kind of poured that into Eve and the temptation in Adam. And so that when Adam and Eve sinned, God challenges them, confronts them in the garden. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And Adam says this, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave it to me and I didn't eat. And in one moment, he expressed hatred for his wife and hatred towards God. And the blame game that's played in every marriage started right there in the garden. Uh, interesting that Adam and Eve had conflict. And we, we know from the Bible that sin leads to hatred of God. Romans 1.30 tells us that. A big description of human depravity and sin. And what does that really look like in our lives? And one of the expressions of sin is hatred towards God. It may be hard for you to think about that, but before you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you aren't neutral towards God. You shake your fist at God because you want to be independent of God. You want to do your own thing without God telling you what to do. Every child's born with that. Interesting that the first family had two boys, Cain and Abel. And as the story unfolds, Cain becomes so filled with hatred towards his brother Abel that he murders him. Hatred. And it's interesting, 1 John chapter 3 talks about that, and it's a lesson for us. For this reason, the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. So he's talking to believers in Jesus Christ and saying, you should be careful in this matter of hatred that you don't become like Cain, who was of the evil one, Satan, and he murdered his brother. And why? What motivated that? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So envy filled his heart. And so he said, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So again, think about this. He's saying we need to love one another, but we are not to have our hearts filled with this kind of hatred because it makes us like Cain. God's hatred of sin led to the flood and the destruction that was there. So there is, a, there is a righteous kind of hatred. There is a holy hatred that God has. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, look what it says. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And it says this of God, you hate all evildoers. Uh, you need to understand this. God isn't neutral towards sin. God hates sin because of what it does to defile and bring destruction like a, like a fire burning his creation up. God hates that. God hates that. Actually, Jesus also hates sin. Hebrews 1, verses 8 to 9 quotes Psalm 45, and it says this, You have loved righteousness, and you hated lawlessness. God has a holy hatred for sin. It is a righteous hatred. Do you know that you and I as believers are called to hate sin too? Look at Psalm 97, verse 10 on the screen. It says, Oh, you who love the Lord, 
hate evil. Do you see that? You're to love God, but you're to hate sin. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So we're to love God, but we're to hate sin. A lot of other passages that talk about that. Even in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8, it says there's a time to hate. Well, what's the difference between God's holy hatred or his righteous hatred and the unrighteous hatred that we see and we experience so often? Well, friends, it's like the difference between a forest fire and having a fire in your fireplace. It's like the difference between a wildfire and having a fire pit behind your house. So my wife and I live in a condo development, and we can't have a, a, a fire pit behind our house that we can burn fire in, that we can burn wood in. So I went out, and I bought online the biggest honking fire pit that you can have that's LP fired up. And I can put it out there, and we can just hang out and enjoy it till the gas runs out. So that's different, though. When you contain fire, it's different than fire spreading and destruction. So watch this. God's hatred of sin is contained within his character. Therefore, God's wrath is really a holy wrath. It is a just wrath. It is a righteous wrath. It's actually a merciful wrath. It's a gracious wrath. It's an all-knowing. All of God's attributes contain that kind of hatred. But man's hatred of, of others is uncontained, and it's destructive. It's destructive. So the, the fear of the Lord, we're told, is to hate evil, Proverbs 8, 13. And, and when we do that, that's different. So you go through the rest of the Bible, and you see hatred and its destructive force. You see how, how horrible hatred is. It ignites the destructive power of this volatile hostility. So here's two twins born to Isaac and uh, Rebekah, uh, Esau and his brother Jacob. And Jacob was, he was a trickster and a supplanter. He tricks his brother into uh, selling him his birthright and his blessing. And, and Esau is out to kill his brother. So Jacob has to escape in the night and go to his uncle Laban. And he met his match with Laban. But that hatred just continued to burn. He wanted to kill his brother. Joseph was so hated by his brothers that they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. That's a lot of hatred. Saul hated David with such a burning passion of hatred that he used him for target practice with his spear and then pursued him for 10 years. David was a fugitive having to run from King Saul because his hatred was so hot. Daniel was so hated by others in the, in the kingdom of Babylon and later media in Persia that they actually created a law that you cannot pray. They created that law so that they could do something to destroy. They hated and they envied Daniel. You know, we don't like to think of this, but the Bible actually tells us that the believer needs to, from time to time, expect that there's going to be hatred from the world towards the Christian. So look what Jesus said in John chapter 15. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. In John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, Know this, that it's hated me, that is Jesus, before it hated you. If you were of the world, you were of this world system with Satan as the king of that kingdom, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, you're not of that world system, because you're a part of now Jesus' kingdom, I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he goes on. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant 
is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus, they will also persecute you, church. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So when you think about this, he said, whoever hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would be, not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hate both me and my father. I don't think as a church we should have a persecution complex and just say, looking for that around every corner. However, we ought to be realistic to know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're identified with Jesus as a part of his church, because Satan hates God, he hates everything that's associated with God. Is that, you get that? Because Satan hates God, he's envious of God, that anything that is associated with God, Satan will hate. And therefore, his kingdom will hate what Satan hates. So we need to expect, if you're expecting as a Christian to simply float through life and never have any opposition to the gospel, I've got news for you. Jesus let us know that we will at times be hated by the world. But does that give us an excuse to hate back? Let's think about that. What's the effect of hatred? Proverbs 10, 12 says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. In other words, you might have a conflict between you and another person, but when you put hatred in there, it's like pouring gasoline on the fire and it just explodes. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. Paul said in Galatians 5.20 that hatred is a part of the, the work of the flesh. In Titus 3.3, 3, he said, people living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Where does all that hatred come from? Where's all that conflict find its root? How do we really look at that? James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, gives us real clarity about where this hatred really comes from. He asks the question, what causes quarrels or what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, are sinful, lustful passions? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. That's envy that is driving hatred. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That hatred burns. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, spending it on your passions. So James asked a question, where does that kind of hatred come from? It comes from our own fallen sinfulness. And he said, often, rather than pray... We get angry and envious towards people that have something we don't have. You ever have a room full of toys and you have two children? You know, they could be at the crawling stage. Room full of toys. What toy will the one child want? The one the other one has. And, and they just get enraged. They'll throw a temper tantrum because they don't have what the other child has. You know what? We're just, we're just doing adult temper tantrums when somebody pulls into that parking spot and you wanted it or somebody cuts you off on the road or somebody gets that that raise or that increase in position and you didn't get it it's the same kind of thing so for 14 years when we lived in northeast pennsylvania we lived um, just north of scranton pennsylvania and 15 miles to the northeast up the valley was a town called carbondale it was called Carbondale because it was one of the centers of coal mining. Matter of fact, it was the very first place where there was a, a railroad that they were charged to ride on it. It was a gravity feed railroad that went from Carbondale down to Scranton. Very first railroad in the United States. 
And they, they began to develop some rather unique ways of mining coal, coal all over that area. And so they would do not just a strip mine, but they would dig a really big trench and get the coal out of there. And they did underground coal mining under the city of Carbondale. Uh, only when they kind of were done with that part of it, they said, well, what are we going to do with these big, these, these big um, holes in the ground that we've created, these big, long trenches that we've taken coal out of? Somebody had the bright idea, fill it with garbage, which is exactly what they did. And we still don't know who did this, but in 1946, somebody lit the garbage dump on fire. Now, remember, you got garbage in a pit surrounded by coal. And the fire began to burn. It went underground and caught all that, those coal mines underground on fire. The fire burned, catch this, from 1946 to 1974. And it, it burned so hot that it was at some places 122 degrees Fahrenheit, some spots 900 degrees Fahrenheit. They tried putting it out by pouring water down in it. They tried boring holes and putting sand and silt down in it, and they couldn't get it out. Matter of fact, one article I read said that there was, there was so much earth moved to try to fix that problem of the fire that there was more dirt moved there than to build the Panama Canal. I don't know how you measure those things, but that's what they said. You think about this. One couple sleep at night, the fumes came up and asphyxiated them. A thousand people were displaced, 120 acres ruined. And today, if you drive through Carbondale, Pennsylvania, it is it just compared to what it once was, a very proud, affluent community. It, you still have that sense of depression, the, the property value so far down. There was one article that said, Carbondale, the city built on hell. I mean, really, how'd you like to have that as your motto for your town? Friends, think about this. That fire burned from 46 to 74. When you hate somebody, hatred will quickly burn out of your control. And it's destructive power. Whenever those, and I think it was a couple of kids that lit that, that dump on fire, they were probably just having fun. Let's go do something crazy. Let's, let's light the dump on fire. They had no idea what that was going to do to a whole community. And friends, when you give in to hatred, you can control the hatred at a certain point when you choose to respond in the right way. But when you don't, it'll burn way beyond your control. If you think you control hatred, you're wrong. It will burn you. It'll burn beyond control. So here's the good news. You ready for some good news? Hatred can be extinguished because of redemption. Friends, the cross of Jesus changes everything. Leviticus chapter 19, just a, a, an interesting passage because it's part of the passage that is going to talk about the, the great commandment, how we're to love others. And, and in, this is back in Moses' day. You have the redeemed people of God out of Egypt. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. This is talking Jew hating Jew. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbors. In other words, have a conversation. Deal with conflict in a collaborative way. Lest you incur sin because of him. In other words, hatred will actually cause you to sin. You shall not take vengeance. It's always wrong in hatred to take revenge on someone. I'm going to get even with you. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. 
or to bear a grudge. That is an unforgiving spirit against the sons of your people. But instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I find it very interesting that in the very passage where we're told to love our neighbor, Jesus quotes this passage when he's talking about the great commandment to love others like God loves us. But in the very context, he talks about don't bear grudges, don't um, hate, don't take vengeance, don't do that. So Olive Moore, um, a 19th century English writer, put these words into writing. Be careful with hatred. Hatred is a passion requiring a hundred times the energy of love. Keep it for a cause, not an individual. Its power and its greatness depend on the selflessness of its use. In other words, don't let anger burn out of control. I think the greatest moment, one of the greatest moments in all of human history has to do with hatred. When Jesus was taken and crucified... And they, they took him and they nailed both of his wrists to a cross beam on that cross on Mount Calvary. They nailed his feet together to the cross. He had a crown of thorns on his head, blood coming down his face. His back was just raw with a whipping that he had received. And down at the foot of the cross, you've got Roman soldiers, just another crucifixion, scorning him. They had already made fun of him when they tortured him. You've got the Jewish leaders, the, the rabbis and the priests and the scribes mocking him. You've got the crowd jeering him. And another thief on the cross next to him simply making fun of him. What would your response be to that? What, would you respond by hating those who hated you? They all hated Jesus. That's what he was receiving from them. But you know what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Father, forgive those Roman soldiers. Forgive the crowd. Forgive those Jewish leaders. Forgive this thief on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. I know you might be, uh, you might be saying, yeah, but that's Jesus and he's God. I'm not, I'm not God. I can't do that. You fast forward to the story in Acts chapter 7 of a man named Stephen, one of the first deacons and the first martyr of the church age. Stephen was a, a godly man, and he's called to account for his testimony of being a follower of Jesus. And, and there in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, Stephen gives a sermon. He had no, he had no opportunity to prepare it, and, and it's a phenomenal message about Jesus. And he speaks with boldness and confidence. And they drag him out of the city of Jerusalem and they kill him by stoning. Now, it's not stoning, being stoned is not talking about drugs. It's being stoned is talking about a way of dying that was murderous and awful. Friends, when I think about if I get to choose the way I die, which I probably won't, death by crucifixion, death by stoning would not be on my short list. Death by stoning means people, you got a crowd of people picking up the biggest rocks they can find and throwing them at your body, breaking your bones, and knock, hopefully one of them knocking you unconscious, and you die by the bruises and the bleeding that happens. It's a horrible death. And yet, while Stephen is being martyred, Stephen, as he's dying, looks up to heaven and he sees a vision of Jesus. His face is radiating the glory of God. And Stephen says this, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. 
lay not this sin to their charge. And I say, how much like Jesus was Stephen? How could he do that? How can you and I do that? How can we respond to when we're being, a, we're being hurt by somebody and, and our, our initial fleshly response is to hate them? How can we respond differently? Well, we're told of Stephen repeatedly in chapter 6 and 7 that he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. That means Stephen was not only indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but he was controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit so controlled his thinking through Scripture, his heart, his actions, his attitudes, his character, that Stephen operated under the control of the Holy Spirit so that he didn't hate when he was hated. And that's what God calls us to do. One of those standing there when Stephen was martyred was called Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was the one overseeing that, that death and, and, and carrying it out. Some days later, Saul of Tarsus is on his way to Damascus to persecute other Christians. And a light from heaven strikes him, and he's, he's on the dirt of the Damascus road, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's Jesus. And then Jesus says this, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were sharp pointed sticks used to be able to drive oxen or cattle. And what Jesus is in sense saying, you have been convicted since the day you saw Stephen's martyrdom. You saw what was going on. It was goading you. The message he preached goaded you with scripture, but, the, but his response of not hating convicted you of your own sin. And of course, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. And Stephen's martyrdom, Stephen's forgiveness, Stephen not hating was one of the things that God used in his life. So friends, um, I, I was going to bring a fire extinguisher up on the platform today and I thought better of it. I thought if I push that thing the wrong way, it could be really a bad moment for you because I'd be pointing it out there. So we decided not to do that. But, but Stephen's hatred was distinguished by the Holy Spirit and by the love of God, by the forgiveness that he experienced from Jesus. I want you to know that hatred is going to be eliminated in God's restoration of all things. So when we think about, about sifting something through the biblical worldview of creation and fall and redemption, restoration. Restoration has to do when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth. And then after that, after that 1,000-year reign of Jesus, there is this new heaven and the new earth. And I want you to know something really good. That in the kingdom and in the new heaven and the new earth... There will not be a toleration of hatred at all. It's going to be gone. Isaiah chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters about the kingdom of Jesus. Look at what it says. There's going to come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And think of a, a tree that's been cut off, the tree trunk there. And here's a live branch coming out of it. A branch from its root will bear fruit. In other words, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to David that there's going to be a king sit on the throne. That's Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him like at his baptism. And so the Holy Spirit is going to give him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might or power, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And his delight, that's Jesus' delight, will be in the fear of God. He will not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, with his authority. 
of his word. And with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In other words, there's coming a time when there's going to be a righteous, just king. And hatred will not be allowed. In that same passage, he talks about how there's going to be just even peace between the different animals and the animal kingdom. And then righteousness is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Friends, there will be a day when there will be no more hatred. When there'll be no more expression of revenge. There'll be no more grudge holding. There'll be no, pe- no more people being abusive. No more of that when Jesus comes back. So then how should we live? How should we respond to what the Bible teaches about hatred? Well, we need to have God's help to quench the hatred in our lives. Two passages of scripture I want to leave with you in some practical, practical application of this. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Look at this. Let all bitterness, which is the poison of an unforgiving spirit, Wrath, which is anger burning out of control. Anger, which is the unyielded rights. Clamor, which is a loud shouting related to hatred. Slander, character assassination. And malice, which is the desire to hurt someone who has hurt you. Be kind, he said, to one another. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted instead of hard-hearted. Forgive one another as God for Christ has forgiven you. It occurred to me as a young man that I had harbored resentment against some people. And that God called me to forgive them. Not because they said they were sorry. Not because they apologized. Not because they repented. Not because they made things right. That I was called to forgive because I had been forgiven by God in Christ. And I was to forgive in the same way. That was to be my motivation and my measurement of how I was to forgive. And friend, it was (laughs) life-changing. Then Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 gives this in in his Sermon on the Mount. Catch the, the, the tenor of this text. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the world's approach. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love is an active verb, by the way. It's saying sacrifice yourself to meet their needs. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Then he talks about what that means. God makes his sunrise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Have you noticed that when God sends the sun that rises, it's not just on the Christian farmer, but the farmer that's a non-Christian that may be a God-hater. That when God sends rain in West Michigan, it doesn't just go and fall on the godly person's land. It goes on the ungodly person's land. That's simply expressing that God shows his kindness and his love even towards those who hate him. He said, if you love those that love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. He goes on and says that uh, if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Meaning you need to be complete in your character as God is complete in his character. Friends, if you simply love people who love you, you're no better off than a, than a person that's not a Christ follower at all. Uh, uh, people who don't know Christ... They know how to scratch the back of someone that scratches their back. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But the person who's able to show love and pray for and bless and care for a person that hates them, that's a person who's like God. That's a person whose character is representing the likeness of God. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world.
Booker T. Washington, great American educator, inventor, reformer, founder of the Tuskegee Institute, said this, and this is a man who faced such racial prejudice in his life and, and such crushing treatment from others. He said, I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate them. He said that again. I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate them. In other words, Booker T. Washington, who was a, a, a follower of Christ, said, I'm not going to let someone else determine my attitude towards them. I will not tune my attitude towards their attitude. I'm going to tune my attitude towards Christ's attitude. So what does that look like in our life? Friends, go back to the cross. Do you know that God's holy Righteous wrath and hatred against you was extinguished on the cross. The fire was put out by what Jesus did there. Jesus took the whole thing upon him. He took the, the flame of God's holy wrath upon him. And so when we stand at the foot of the cross, you need to know the foot of the cross is level. You can't look down on someone else in envy or spite or because they're different from you in hatred. Because at the cross, the ground is level. Uh, there's the Romans, there's the Jews, there's some Gentiles, there's others that are there at the cross. But the ground is level at the cross, and you're not better than somebody else. And you don't have the right to hate someone else when you, when you stand at the foot of the cross. On the cross, Christ's love replaced anger. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, that's one of the most, there's seven statements of Jesus on the cross, and to me, the most profound one is that. Father, forgive them. If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, and I'm unwilling to forgive another person, then Jesus tells me in Matthew 18, there are serious consequences for anybody that confesses to be a follower of Jesus and is unwilling to forgive another person. Serious, severe consequences for that person. Because we're called to forgive because we've been forgiven. You see, God's forgiveness cancels our hatred at the cross. And self is dethroned and Christ is enthroned on the cross. And God gives you a capacity to give over hatred. Hatred is burning across our countries. It's consuming our homes. It's affecting our society. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be different. We need to be the kind of people who choose not to hate but to love like Jesus loved and forgive like Jesus forgave and show grace the way he showed grace and show mercy the way he showed mercy because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's bow together and pray. And I want to just ask you as I, as I lead us in prayer, as you've been listening to this message, has the Spirit of God moved in your heart and you're thinking of a name of a person or the face of a person that you have hatred towards? The name of a person, the face of a person that you just despise. And there's burning in your soul that hatred. It may not be something even recent. It could be something that happened a long time ago. But that hatred is there. I want to invite you to take that hatred to the foot of the cross. I want to invite you to take it there where Jesus died for you. Where he said, Father, forgive them. I'm asking you to, to turn that hatred over to him. It could be for someone in your household. It could be someone at work. It could be someone in your past. It could be something that happened this week. It could be someone who sees things differently than you do politically. But you just hate them. 
Jesus is calling you to give that hatred up. He's calling you to forgive those that hurt you, to love them, to pray for them, to bless them, because that's what it is to be a Christ follower, and that's what makes you different from this world. Father in heaven, we invite you into our hearts. And as we stand at the foot of the cross that we've heard about in, from your word that we have sung about today, oh God, may, may our hatred be nailed to that cross. May our right to revenge be crucified there. May we give up an unforgiving spirit. May we cancel the debt that others owe us. May we yield hatred to the God who had every right to hate us and yet took our sin upon himself. God, help us to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving instead of those who demonstrate hate, hatred. We need you, Holy Spirit, to fill us to do that. We can't do this ourselves. We need you to change us from the inside out. Transform us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.